Hello and welcome to the June 2018 edition of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. My name's Colin Yeo. I'm starting this month with a whistle-stop tour of some of the latest changes to the immigration rules. I'm going to highlight a couple of procedural changes, including the end of special deadlines for the Home Office in judicial review cases. Then to Brexit, as the government has finally published something approaching a plan on citizens' rights. And I'm going to also go to cover a few judgments around children and families, note some case law on trafficking, deportation and asylum, and then ending on what I'm afraid is an alarming note on immigration bail accommodation. We've also published uh, a few updated explainers on a few topics this month, and I'm not going to go over those, but I'll give them a mention as I go. If you want to claim CPD points for listening to this podcast, then head to www.freemovement.org.uk slash join and sign up as a member. So starting with the immigration rules, we've got Statement of Changes HC1154. Um, This was laid on the 15th of June and all changes were to come into force on the 6th of July 2018, although some of them only apply to applications made after that date. Now, I'm not going to cover absolutely every single change in detail. I'm going to go over mainly the general practice changes and I'm going to just flag some of the others. So, starting with returning residents, this is rules 18 and 19 of the immigration rules. These have come under some scrutiny because of the Windrush scandal. Now, we've had the current, or the old now, form of the rules for some time, and these have now been tweaked to be a bit more sensible looking, basically, and I think, really, to be fair to the Home Office, to incorporate what was probably always more or less the approach that was being followed, but to actually reflect that more properly in the rules. So essentially, the policy has been slightly better expressed in the rules themselves. Um, People with ILR who've been away for under two years are no longer classed as returning residents and can return without a visa, which I think was the case anyway. Um, Those who have been outside for the UK for uh, over two years have to apply for leave to enter. They've got to show that they've got strong ties to the UK and they intend to make the UK their permanent home. Previously, the rules said that returning residents had to show, for example, that they had lived here most of their life, which was narrower, although the policy itself, to be fair, was um, wider than that. There's also been a change to the exceptions for overstayers. So this is paragraph 39E of the immigration rules. And this is where somebody makes an out-of-time application and they're allowed to make a um, an application that will be considered to be valid if it's made within 14 days and also the Secretary of State thinks there are good reasons. The way this rule was previously drafted, it allowed the period of overstay to be disregarded twice and that's now been redrafted so it's now only possible for an applicant to apply for further leave within 14 days of the expiry of previous leave, disregarding the overstay once. So that's quite an important change. It probably doesn't affect that many people but it's an important one to be aware of. Um, Several changes to the points-based system. Um, The rules for Tier 1 general migrants were um, completely taken out of the rules because the route closed as of 6th of April 2018. Um, Some tweaks to the Tier 1 exceptional talent and the endorsement of arts applicants has been widened to include those in the fashion industry, so good news for them. Tier 1 investors, there's some tweaks to the changes, um, tweaks to the rules on that. I'm not going to go over that in detail. And also some minor changes to the Tier 1 entrepreneur rules. Tier 2 saw some pretty big changes, and this will be because of the um, taking doctors and nurses outside the limit for visas uh, for non-skilled EU workers, essentially. Um, There are also some other more minor changes. I'm not going to go over that in in detail now, but um, that was the big one. 
there was a significant change to the way that absences for indefinite leave to remain applications are, cancelled, are, are calculated. And this was around the definition of continually resident in the UK for the five-year period that's necessary for settlement. And essentially, there was a, a previous change um, which took place in January 2018, saying that um, the 180-day limit couldn't be exceeded in any of the five 12-month periods preceding the date of application. Um, and this was potentially problematic because some people were relying on a previous interpretation, which was essentially it was a rolling 12-month period. Um, so that change has now clarified, been, been clarified in the rules so that it applies only to people who've entered after the 11th of January 2018. So those who had entered before being granted leave before the 11th of January 2018, the old method of calculation will apply, whereas it's the new method for changes um, for those who've entered after the 11th of January 2018. There's a few changes to the student rules as well, including one welcome one, which is that the minimum length that a postgraduate course needs to be in order for the Tier 4 migrants to be eligible to bring dependents with them to the UK is reduced from 12 months to 9 months. There are also some changes to the rules for Afghan citizens, um, at least those who had previously worked with UK forces in Afghanistan. So there are essentially two schemes um, to allow resettlement in the UK or, or travel to the UK. One is referred to as the ex gratia redundancy scheme for those who've served at least a year on the front line and were being made redundant as a consequence of the UK military withdrawal. And then also there was an intimidation policy for those whose safety was threatened due to their work with British forces. And only the first of those two schemes was actually reflected in the immigration rules. We're now seeing that the intimidation policy scheme is also being brought within the rules and further new rules being introduced to provide a route to settlement for um, people under both of those schemes. Um, the applications are free of charge. There is a specific form for settlement applications, although that hasn't been released yet. So that's good news for those affected. Also on the subject of leave, we've got the um, introduction of a new, um, a slightly odd type of leave for uh, what might be described as Dubs Amendment children. So this is Section 67 of the Immigration Act 2016, and essentially it's a resettlement scheme allowing some children to be brought to the UK and resettled here from Europe. Um, a specific type of leave, which is catchily um, been entitled Section 67 of the Immigration Act 2016 leave, although we can probably refer to it as Dubs leave, um, which is essentially very similar to refugee protection. It's for five years and um, a child is eligible for settlement at the end of that. They're also eligible to apply for a travel document. Um, so that's good news for those children. There's also good news for Turkish workers. Um, seems like actually quite a lot of good news, and it's not often you can say that about changes to the immigration rules. We've seen the in reintroduction of a settlement route for Turkish business persons, Turkish workers um, who benefited from the um, Ankara Agreement, as it's known. Um, a few months ago, we saw the settlement route being taken out of the immigration rules, but now it's been brought back in. And essentially, it, the requirements are that the last grant of leave was under the um, Ankara Agreement. They've lived in the UK continuously for five years. They've got to show sufficient knowledge of the English language, sufficient knowledge of life in the UK. And um, they've got to be able to support any family members with them without recourse to public funds. And they've got to not fall for refusal under the general grounds for refusal. So reasonably um, generous change there. Um, one last one to highlight, there are a couple of other tweaks to the rules as well, but um, I want to particularly flag up the removal of Croatians from the limit for allocated endorsements of Tier 1 Exceptional Talents and Tier 2 Certificates of Sponsorship. 
Why is that important? It's because from the 1st of July 2018, which is the fifth year anniversary of Croatia's entry to the EU, Croatian nationals no longer need authorization to work in the UK and they benefit fully from EU free movement rules, at least while EU free movement rules still apply in the UK. So good news for them. Moving on now to a couple of procedural matters. I need to give a mention to a new case from the tribunal, which is a case called R on the application of KA and another against Secretary of State for the Home Department, ending of Kumar arrangements, reference 2018 UKUT 201 IAC. Now, um, those in the know will know that a Kumar arrangement is to do with the deadlines imposed on the Home Office in judicial review cases. I don't want to go into the background on this because I'll get too cross about it, frankly. But for some time now, since 2014, the Home Office has been permitted by the Tribunal to serve documents very late in judicial review cases with no penalty. That arrangement is changing, although only very belatedly, some of us would say. And in fact, it's only going to apply the the, the new rules, as in actually the old rules, the enforcement of the rules that should always have been enforced, will be from the 1st of January 2019. Even quicker mention here for new um, Immigration Tribunal practice statements which have been reissued. Um, The only change that we were able to detect is some removal of um, what I suppose were seen as constraints on the review process as part of the um, appeal scheme in the Tribunal Enforcement Act. It's it's not a big change. I don't think it matters, but just to, to give it a mention there. I want to give a big mention to a very useful post by one of our very regular contributors, Nath Gibikpi, on um, the leave to remain application date, how to calculate it and why it's important. Now, very experienced lawyers are no doubt familiar with all this stuff, but nevertheless, we thought it'd be useful to put a post out about it and basically ways of managing the process to make sure that there is no period of overstay where a person is applying for an extension of their visa here in the UK and the benefits of using the online application process um, in order to manage it. So I highly recommend that um, that post if you are interested in these subjects. It's dated the 8th of June 2018. Right, moving on now to the settled status scheme. We've seen um, some major announcements on this. We saw the publication of a statement of intent, finally, as well as draft immigration rules laid by the end of July, in fact. So just to pick out a few interesting points from this, the basic sort of provision of the scheme is that a successful application requires presence in the UK, EU nationality or link to an EU national through family uh, membership and no serious criminal record. The particularly interesting points that we weren't necessarily aware of or which had been announced but um, weren't written down in a way that a lawyer would feel secure about um, are confirmation that those who are continuously resident in the UK but happen to be abroad when the post-Brexit transition ends on the 31st of December 2020 will be covered by the scheme and there is a detailed definition of what they mean by continually resident. There's also confirmation that EU citizens will not be required to show that they meet all the requirements of current free movement rules, such as any requirement to have held comprehensive sickness insurance. The UK government has been saying that all along, but it's good to see that formally in writing. Um, Also confirmation that applicants will not need to pay the immigration health surcharge on top of the £65 application fee. And further, that those who get pre-settled status and those who haven't been in the UK for five years won't have to pay the fee again in order to get full settled status. There is a a table, Annex A, of evidence that will be accepted by the Home Office as proof of residence. 
Um, there's also details of the precise legal status that's going to be granted under UK law, which unsurprisingly is basically indefinite leave to remain for those who get what the Home Office is now calling settled status, or limited leave to remain for those who get pre-settled status. So we now know properly that settled status is just a rebadging of indefinite leave to remain. It'll actually be indefinite leave to remain, basically. The scheme will be open to citizens of non-EU Iceland, Liechtenstein, Norway and Switzerland on a similar basis as for EU citizens. We know the scheme will be open to Surinder Singh family members and also there have been some welcome clarification that the UK sponsoring citizen doesn't need to have been working continuously since re-entry to the UK. However, the UK government is currently saying that the scheme isn't going to be open to Zambrano, Chen or Ibrahim Texera carers. Um, which is an ongoing concern. Irish citizens who don't need to apply for settled status may do so if they wish, and the scheme is going to be monitored by the Independent Chief Inspector for Borders and Immigration before a proper independent monitoring authority is set up as required by the draft withdrawal agreement. So that is all good news, and we have accordingly updated our post on how to apply for settled status for EU citizens. Now, we originally published this in January. We're keeping it up to date and republishing it when anything new is announced. So we're intending that that is what we hope to be a useful resource for lawyers or for um, EU citizens themselves who are going through the process. So as we learn more, we'll update and republish that. I'm going to give a quick mention to a briefing that I was working on for quite some time and put out on the 14th of June on barriers to British citizenship for EU nationals. And this is um, something I've been worried about for quite some time. There have been a handful of cases that have reached the media where um, the, some of the issues have been highlighted. And um, essentially, I've, I've put together a list of things that the UK government could do um, that would make it easier and reduce the anxiety of EU citizens who are concerned about applying for naturalisation or seeking residence for their children. And there's a particular problem, I think, for the children of EU citizens who have been born in the UK in previous years, where, in theory, they are automatically born British citizens because their parents were settled in the UK because they had automatically acquired permanent residence. The problem is that they don't have evidence of that because many EU citizens, the vast majority of EU citizens, didn't apply for a permanent residence document because it wasn't needed and there was no particular reason to do so. And in fact, before Brexit, um, there was no particular need for the children to acquire British citizenship because as EU citizens, they could go to and from the UK freely in future anyway. Brexit becomes a real problem for these children, though, because suddenly British citizenship is going to be something that's very valuable to them in future but they don't necessarily have a clear, good way of proving that they are actually British citizens. Because how later in life are you going to find five years worth of P60s or or whatever proof that your parent was um, working or self-employed and so on for the five years leading up to your birth or at some five-year period before your birth such that they had acquired permanent residence? And that's a real problem, and it's something that... The Home Office just isn't dealing with, in my view, um, and that there's an inherent problem with the way that British um, nationality law meshes with EU free movement rights. Um, but it's not a, an insurmountable problem, and certainly the Home Office could and should be doing more. So if you're interested in these issues, do take a look at that briefing and um, yeah, let me know what you think. Sticking with EU free movement issues, we saw a very interesting case from the Court of Justice of the European Union called Komen C-673-16, which was about the rights of a Romanian man 
to be accompanied by his same-sex spouse um, from another country back to Romania. So I think this was essentially a, a Surrender Singh-type situation where Mr. Coman had been living abroad with his spouse, wanted to come back to Romania and rely on EU law for his third-country national um, spouse to be with him. And the Romanians had refused um, the application on the basis they didn't recognise um, same-sex spouses, but the CJEU has held that in, in EU law, um, where a person is validly married in the country in which the marriage took place, and even where it is a same-sex marriage, that is recognised in EU law, and therefore um, they were entitled to rely on Surinder Singh if they met the Surinder Singh criteria, I, I, I guess. So, interesting case and um, you know, potentially controversial, but it's clear because essentially, you know, the, there, there are some countries that don't recognise um, same-sex spouses and they no doubt don't want to have this um, interpretation uh, imposed on them in their view. But that's not what the CJEU has done. It said that for the purposes of EU law, um, same-sex spouses, same-sex marriages will be recognised. There's an interesting implication of this that Nath Giblikpi has picked out, which is that the UK doesn't recognise civil partnerships um, in other countries, but probably following Coman now needs to recognise those formal lawful partnerships entered to in other EU countries, which are between um, people of opposite sects. The UK only recognises same-sex civil partnerships um, at the moment and probably needs to change that. Some more good news on EU residence rights, um, but this time from our own Court of Appeal here in the UK in a case called Bega Zaver against Secretary of State for the Home Department, 2018, EWCA Civ 1088. And this is about retained rights of residence, where a marriage between an EU citizen and a third country national breaks down. And essentially, the Home Office changed its position in this case. There was a consent order, um, but the Court of Appeal gave judgment and was invited to give judgment anyway in order to make the position crystal clear. I don't want to go over the, the whole background to this, but essentially um, the law has been clarified as being that a person who's claiming retained rights only needs to show that the partner was a qualified person, such as a worker, up until the point that divorce proceedings were initiated. They don't need to show that the person was a qualified person um, up until the point of the actual finalisation of the divorce. Quick mention now for a new explainer post that Nick Nason has put together, and this is on how to apply for a visa as the parent of a child in the UK. So this is essentially where um, the person is, the parent is outside the UK, over the age of 18, is able to adequately maintain and accommodate themselves, able to speak English, and they've got a relationship with a child who is living in the UK under 18, is a British national or has settled status. And the the, the key requirements are basically that the applicant has either got to have sole parental responsibility for the child, which is can be quite a difficult test to meet, or um, have direct access in person to the child as agreed with the parent or carer with whom the child normally lives or as ordered by a court in the UK. So if you're interested in those kinds of applications, then do take a look at Nick's post, which is a very detailed, excellent one. I have a couple of trafficking cases to mention, um, the first of which is, is really quite a distressing one because essentially the child was basically lost by the Home Office and is somewhere out there now 
presumably back in the hands of the traffickers. So the case is called TDT and it's reference 2018 EWCA Civ 1395. And essentially this, this is a case where the claimant themselves, the trafficked child, has gone missing because the Home Office simply released that child um, to an unchecked address without taking any precautions, even though the Home Office should have been aware or was really aware um, that the child was at risk of trafficking. So it, it's a litany of failures, really, by civil servants at the Home Office. It's a failure of approaches, um, a failure of the, the the structures that the Home Office has put in place to protect children, and it obviously has had very dire consequences for that particular child. Um, I also want to give a quick mention to a tribunal case, which I confess I struggled to see why it had been reported. It's called AUJ Trafficking No Conclusive Grounds Decision 2018 UKUT 200 IAC and this concerns cases where there's been no conclusive grounds decision but the person is asserting that they have been trafficked. So if you're dealing with those kind of situations then do take a look at that case. Moving on to another tribunal case we've got um, this is called Andel brackets foreign criminal paragraph 398 close brackets 2018 UKUT 198 IAC. Now, the official headnote for this one says that paragraph 398 of the rules includes not only foreign criminals as defined in the 2002 Act and the 2007 Act, but also other individuals who, in the view of the Secretary of State, are liable to deportation because of their criminality and or their offending behaviour. Which is all well and good because the, the word foreign criminal isn't actually defined in the immigration rules. But rather unfortunately, um, this case contrasts with an earlier tribunal decision which in, in, in which exactly the opposite was held. And that earlier case is called OLO and others, paragraph 398, foreign criminal, 2016, UKUT 56 IAC. And in that case, the tribunal held that for the purpose of paragraph 398, foreign criminal definition in the 2002 Act was to be adopted. So we've got fairly conflicting authority there from the tribunal, which is right, I don't know. Another quick tribunal case mention, this is called Tirabi, Deportation Lawfully Resident, Section 5.1, 2018, UKUT 199 IAC. Now, the, the headnote for this is particularly obscure because it's basically a list of numbers and letters as far as I can see. But essentially, it's saying that um, one of, for the exception to deportation for foreign criminals who are sentenced to less than four years imprisonment, it requires the person, or one of the, the, one of the requirements potentially, is that the person has shown lawful residence for most of their life. And the tribunals held that that includes residence after their leave is invalidated by the receipt of a deportation um, order because sometimes deportation orders, particularly under the UK Borders Act 2007, are given early in the process, which has the effect of invalidating a person's leave. So that doesn't count as unlawful residence um, for the purposes of the exception, which is good news. Um, another quick mention for a tribunal case. This one is MS, bracket, Article 1C5, Mogadishu, 2018, UKUT 196 IAC. This is a short case, but in some ways it's quite an important one because, uh, let me read you the headnote. The Secretary of State is not entitled to cease a person's refugee status pursuant to Article 1C5 of the Refugee Convention solely on the basis of a change of circumstances in one part of the country of proposed return. Now, Article 1C5 is the cessation clause which says that basically if the situation 
is safe in the country of origin, then refugee status, status can be ceased. Um, now, in, in the facts of this case, um, it it's, comes across as what we might describe as, as unsympathetic because the um, appellant had been recognised as a refugee but had been convicted of various offences and the Home Office response was to attempt to withdraw refugee status on the basis that it would now be safe in Mogadishu, even if it wasn't still safe in the appellant's home area of Kismayo, which is a different part of, of Somalia. Now, in this case, the upper tribunal has sided with the appellant, holding that there's a very significant philosophical and indeed practical difference between the grant and the cessation of refugee status, and that it would be contrary both to logic and principle if it were easier to cease a person's refugee status than to make a grant of refugee status. For what it's worth, my take is that it is rather concerning that the Home Office is attempting to roll back the boundaries of refugee pr protection in these unsympathetic cases on the facts, um, because the effect of that um, would be that it seriously weakens protection status for all refugees. And the Home Office is being very selective um, in applying this kind of cessation policy, and we've seen this in some news reports and other cases, where basically it's people who've been convicted of criminal offences are the only ones who are being subjected to the um, cessation process. But, you know, if, if you can imagine that if you succeed in succeeding status in such cases, then that's um, a, a principle that could be applied much more widely to all refugees from a given country. So um, it's good to see that the Home Office um, hasn't gotten away with it, should we say, in, in this case, and that the upper tribunal is drawing that distinction between qualifying for status and having it taken away from you. Right, I want to give a mention to an updated explainer we put out on um, religious asylum claims. Um, I think there are a lot of parallels between religious asylum claims and any asylum claim which is based on a claimed characteristic um, by the asylum applicant. So that could be in sexuality cases, could be in political opinion cases as well. And there are some, some clear parallels in the approach because how can you see into... Um, a person's mind and tell whether they genuinely do have that claimed characteristic or not. And um, we open this post with a statement from Elizabeth I, I would not open windows into men's souls. So we're looking at this post in the, the kind of approach that you might adopt in trying to prove such cases um, and looking at things like context and why the person has become interested or uh, their background in that religion and then also looking at how consistent they've been in their behaviour and in their adherence to that religion, and really emphasising that um, actions perhaps are, are, are the best way of judging such cases, as opposed to trying to imagine that you can open a window into a man's soul when, in fact, you can't. Right, some final um, comments. This is on migrants who've been detained indefinitely, effectively, um, or made homeless by the new immigration bail system which was introduced in January of this year. And um, one of the many problems with the new immigration bail system is that there is no process for securing accommodation for a person who's in immigration detention. So in theory, there is a statutory route by which accommodation can be granted, but there is not in fact any process by which to apply for um, that accommodation. And we've seen a huge drop, 98% drop in offers of accommodation by the Home Office, um, which means that it's either basically impossible um, if, if the historic approach is adopted to bail 
um, decisions where basically bail wouldn't be granted if there was no address available. Um, so it would make it impossible um, for, for bail to be granted. Or alternatively, the judges have to follow a new approach and grant bail even though the person is going to be essentially street homeless. Um, so it, it's a pretty um, unpleasant situation that's arising. There are hundreds of migrants we think are being affected by this and bail for immigration detainees is extremely concerned. And to make matters worse, um, we've reported on a couple of cases and there's a, a recent case called Baraka against Secretary of State for the Home Department 2018 EWHC 1549 admin. Um, and we've also mentioned an, an earlier case on, on the same subject called Sathananam. And um, Nick Nason looks at this new judgment and basically it's, it's a case where it was held to be lawful that there were huge delays, over a year of delays in arranging accommodation even under the old system um, for somebody who wanted release from detention and they couldn't be released because um, there was no address and the judge held that um, those delays, as bad as they were, were lawful because the Home Office had been trying their best. One might question whether they really had been trying their best if they were unable to arrange accommodation um, for a period of, of over a year, but there we have it. So on that rather um, unfortunate note, that wraps up June and I'll be back next month. I hope you found that helpful. Bye.